Hello there. Hope you're keeping well. Uh, I wanted to just take a few minutes of your time to introduce a conversation that I had recently with the philosopher Julie Reich in Belfast in the Bullet Hotel. Julie Reich is a philosopher who does a work called Negative Psychoanalysis, and she recently published this book called Negative Psychoanalysis and the Living Dead. And we were both keen to have a conversation exploring the similarities and differences between the work of parotheology and this work of radical negativity. There is a lot uh, of intersection between our two respective vocations, and that's something that we both really wanted to explore. So we had a series of conversations, most of which weren't captured on camera. Uh, often the best conversations are the ones that happen once you turn off the microphone. But we did capture one conversation, and I want to share that with you. But before I do, I thought it would be good to maybe talk a little bit about Julie's work and my interest in it. Maybe talk a little bit about where I think parotheology intersects with her thinking, and then you can watch the conversation. So I guess you could contextualize Julie's work as a type of radical critique of positive psychology. And we can think of positive psychology as an umbrella term that describes any form of psychology or medicalization that sees at the core of our being some sort of uh, non-traumatized subject. There is a type of wholeness and completeness that maybe was in the past that we can get in the future. Uh, now this covers a lot of different uh, disciplines. Uh, positive psychology would cover things like ego psychology, uh, object relations, depth psychology, analytic psychology, psychiatry, CBT, NLP, even popular versions of manifesting and the secret, et cetera, et cetera, right? Anything that helps you move from A to B. A is your place of alienation where you feel uh, unhappy and B is something that you want to get to to fulfill your longing and your yearning. And in contrast to positive psychology, you have uh, drive theory. And drive theory uh, relates to the idea that actually at the core of our subjectivity, and if you push it uh, far enough right, into philosophy, which both Julie and I are very interested in, uh, this extends into reality itself. But at the core of our subjectivity, and at the core of reality is a type of asymmetry, a type of lack or contradiction that reality is divided and we are divided. And there is no way to overcome that division without overcoming life itself. Now, famously, this was an insight of Freud in 1920. So pre-1920, Freud could be seen as a psychotherapist, right? A therapist of sorts. He wanted to help people get better. But in 1920, with the publication of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Uh, this book articulates his discovery and his reflections on what is called death drive, a concept that has been enriched since, but that came to 
describe a dimension of ourselves that doesn't want to get better, that doesn't want to be healed, that enjoys our suffering. And this is really interesting because pre-1920, Freud was largely, like most thinkers today, and everyone who kind of is covered by positive psychology, uh, the human being is an egotistical creature, a utilitarian creature wanting to maximize their pleasure and minimize their pain. There is a certain utility to being human and we want to extend our lives and make our lives better and that can often mean making the lives of those around us better you know we're communal beings but ultimately we want what is best even in our personal lives we want relationships that are good we want work that is fulfilling we want to uh, give ourselves to projects that we believe in right and of course consciously that resonates with us all because that seems so uh uh, so commonsensically correct. But then Freud, as I said, discovered this notion of trauma as a repetition of something destructive, that there's a self-sabotaging uh, dimension of human being where we seem to want the worst for ourselves, where we repeat bad things, where we don't want to write the book that we want to write, that we continually have writer's block as soon as we start to write it, that somehow we are wanting not the best for ourselves, but sometimes the worst for ourselves. And this is manifested in our relationships and in the, the, the work that we give ourselves to, in the ways that we trip ourselves up. And after that, Freud enters what some people call a pessimist realist stage, uh, where he starts to go, what does health look like um, when you take into consideration this dimension of the subject? And also, how do we think this dimension of the subject? Uh, one way of thinking about it actually is that this dimension is the core of what we mean by the unconscious. Because at the level of consciousness, we are utilitarian. At the level of consciousness, we do want the best for ourselves and other people. Uh, and the idea that there is some part of ourselves that doesn't want that doesn't really make sense. So we can never really bring this to consciousness. It's operating within us without ever being something we can directly grasp. So Freud's work post-1920 was how do we take into consideration this death drive, this dimension of subjectivity. And this leads to the idea that there is no non-traumatized subject. There is no subject that has not been touched by catastrophe, the catastrophe of life itself. That there is something about being a subject that means you have passed through the crucible of death and continue to experience that death in a living way. One of the ways that Julie describes life is a constellation of death and it's a very beautiful way of describing potentially life in that a constellation is a shape a pattern that stars make so in a way death takes a form takes a shape and that shape is life and uh, Julie's work is an exploration of that, of that notion that death is not something that lies ahead of us just, or a nothingness that lies in our past, but that this death is in a sense a part of who we are, even if we 
uh, don't directly confront it. Now, Julie's work looks at uh, the darkest dimension of this and uses the example of people who are irredeemably traumatized, people who have diseases and traumas that they cannot uh, get past where you say, oh, you can manifest your destiny. You can change your life. You can have something that is better, right? Which is fine to say to somebody who's in their 20s or 30s and is healthy, but much more difficult to say to somebody who has lost their entire family in a war or who has very severe mental or physical handicaps or is undergoing the destructive disintegration of their brain through something like Alzheimer's. What do you do then? And a lot of Julie's work is about saying that in a way there is nothing you can do. That what perhaps we can give ourselves to is the creation of spaces where we sit with this negativity. I was thinking about Jean Vanier and his work with the L'Arche community, where these communities were set up, where people with very severe physical and mental disabilities lived together with people who didn't have those disabilities. But it wasn't hierarchical. These communities are where we live together. You bear witness to life in that traumatic dimension. Not with any goal, but somehow there is something powerful that results from that. Now, Julie is very careful to not try to turn this radical negativity into something positive. I'll talk about that in a second, right? Um, because what she and I agree on very much is that there is all ideology and all politics is kind of trying to get you from A to B. Now, there's not anything wrong with that as such, right? But you're always kind of going from one place to another. What would it look like for a place in which you don't have to move from A to B? You simply are, you simply encounter yourself and you realize that A does not equal A. Now to put that in theological language and in the kind of language of parotheology, I would say that this is grace, a community or a communion we, we both like the word communion because a community is a group of people gathered together around shared positivity, right? A shared enemy, a shared set of beliefs, shared identity, shared goals, right? So community is, by definition, positivity, right? Um, or attempts positivity. Communion is a group who are gathered together around a shared loss, right? So theologically, communion is a remembrance of the death of God. It's almost like a type of funeral. It's a symbolization of the death of God, which can be seen as a way of describing the uh, lack that is within the absolute itself. So a communion is not where we all share same belief or identity or look, but where we realize that each one of us is riven with lack that there is a type of nothingness that joins us, that we have nothing in common. So this notion of communion, there's theological dimension to that, is a space of grace. And by grace, I mean it's the, it's the opposite of ideology and the opposite of self-help, the opposite of positive psychology, because all of those are bringing you from A to B. 
Grace is where you don't have to go from A to B. You don't have to do anything. In grace, you accept that you're accepted and you're able to just be with yourself and encounter yourself, which means encountering that dimension of yourself in which you're divided, in which you are hysterical or in which you are not one with yourself. Right? So that's radical grace. You don't go from A to B. You stay at A and you encounter that and realize that A is full of holes. It's full of contradiction. It's full of asymmetry and antagonism. And again, to put another theological term on this then, it's an acceptance of original sin, meaning original lack, which I don't think any confessional theology has really done justice to because all confessional theology falls under positive psychology in that it postulates that there was an original fullness, then a lack, and a, then a return to fullness. So original sin, meaning original lack, is not really original. When Matthew Fox talks about original blessing, that isn't just his kind of mystical kind of thought. There is a sense in which original blessing is found even in the most radical forms of confessional theology. But to take seriously original sin as an originary lack that does not have a fullness before it is a way of realizing that we must come to terms with this dimension of ourselves rather than try to overcome it. That none of us are normal, none of us are non-traumatized. That even when life is going well, as I say, there is a trauma, not just that happens to us in our lives. Some people who have gone through wars, people who have gone through breakups, gone through illness, gone through the loss of people they love. Those traumas are all around us and within us. But also there is a trauma of being a desiring subject, of being a subject of language, of being a person. And that uh, involves this embrace of this original lack. And then another piece of theological language that I would I say, this is not what Julie's talking about, this is me kind of expressing some of her ideas in a language that I know. Uh, is the forgiveness of sin, which is the forgiveness of lack. Uh, a way of understanding that is confessional religion and also positive psychology kind of pays sin, right? So the payment of debt, which means if you owe money, that is a nothing, that is something. If you have no money, that's a nothing. But if you owe money, that is a nothing that is something that will give you anxiety. You will have health issues. People will be writing to you. You'll be uh, panicky about what you owe, right? So debt is a nothing that is something that makes a demand on you that, that devastates your life potentially. Now to pay a debt means that somebody comes and they take money and they fill that nothing with something with money. But to forgive a debt doesn't mean you pay it. To forgive a debt means you render the nothing nothing. So in the year of Jubilee, uh, there was this idea that of the forgiveness of debt every 50 years. Debts would be forgiven. They wouldn't be paid. They would be forgiven. So what I think Julie's work is about, in a sense, is the forgiveness of sin. <laughs> um, it is a way of, re of 
encountering this nothing but robbing it of its sting through the experience of grace gathering together in communion acknowledging our original sin i should say however that julie uh might feel that i am positivizing the negative like what she wants to do is hold uh this space without trying to render it economic at all where you lose something to get something so she is incredibly sensitive to uh, not reducing negative psychoanalysis to some sort of positive ideological endeavor and i that's what I find so fascinating about this book and purifying about this book. So I found this to be a type of purifying fire for me that helped me question myself as to whether I am in my work of parotheology, uh, whether I still have the specter of this uh, non-traumatized kind of notion of wholeness that is so easy for us to fall back into. But I would say that I think there is a difference between moving from A to B and acknowledging that A does not equal A. Something that Julie and I talked about outside of this conversation was how AA can be a place in which people gather together around a shared loss, a shared trauma, the trauma that comes from alcohol. And I was talking with Julie about how the 12 steps uh, of AA might actually be the least important part of it. That might be the part that draws people in. But there is this step zero. And the step zero is just a space of grace where you say your name and you say you're an alcoholic. In other words, you find a way to say, I am a traumatized subject. And you acknowledge that in a circle of other traumatized subjects who are not trying to say, oh, I'm well and you can be well, who simply accept your testifying, your bearing witness to your trauma. And that step zero is potentially the only step that really matters. Uh, and so there's something about AA that is touching on what we're talking about here with communion except it's not about alcohol it's about the trauma of being itself and acknowledging that trauma a question that came up with my friend phil harrison who was there uh, and you'll hear in a, in a minute uh, is he said well what if you know it sounds like you can't make a distinction between whether you want to take drugs or see your children more uh, if everything is equally destructive and there's this negativity how can you make a distinction between taking heroin or looking after your kids and julie's answer was kind of yeah there's no difference right but a way to understand that answer um, is to maybe think that in life we do need advice and we need help and we make those kinds of judgments but what about having a space in our lives a desert in the oasis of our lives where we're not told what we should do or not do but we're brought to a space in which we just confront ourselves in who we are. So if you are choosing to do drugs over seeing your kids more in this space, you confront that in yourself and you confront what's going on in you and you come to, you come to start looking at this dimension of yourself. And that potentially 
might have a transformative power when you leave that place. So one example is in ICON, which is the communion that I was part of many years ago. Uh, it was around the time where the Iraq war was happening and there were people in ICON who wanted us to make a political statement about what we thought about the war. Now, a lot of the people in ICON, including myself, were part of uh, protests uh, about the Iraq war and we were against that. But uh, I argued at the time that ICON should not have any position on that. It's not political. Politics is important and when you leave that space, we can discuss that and make make decisions and have a, have a have a position but that the whole point of icon was a space once a month <laughs> an hour where you confront negativity you connect how we are all joined by this lack uh without trying to work out what that what positive impact that has on your life or on society. That gets worked out once you leave that space. But there is uh, a value in having that space where we encounter this dimension of ourselves. Uh, now, Julie's work is, as I say, more focused, at least this book is more focused on people who are experiencing an absolute despair where any type of kind of positive, you can do it message would feel like a dagger. And her work is about acknowledging that irredeemable suffering, that what she calls negative plasticity from the work of Catherine Malibu, where say the brain is irredeemably destroyed by a stroke, for example. Uh, that somehow there is simply a bearing witness to that, but there is also some truth that that touches. And when we encounter someone who is experiencing that, that they are a truth teller. They tell us something about the deepest nature of ourselves. And one other thing that Julie does, and then we can have the conversation itself, um, is Julie holds psychoanalysis to account. Uh, Julie is critical even of Lacanian psychoanalysis, although she also uses some of those ideas. In particular, her work is based on the notion of death drive. So she takes this notion as the central notion of the psychoanalytic insight. And I agree with that. Uh, but she's very critical of even kind of proper psychoanalysis that it can offer a type of ideological uh, uh, approach, a positive psychology. And I think that that is true, but that is the transgression of psychoanalysis, that psychoanalysis proper, the analyst doesn't come in saying, I kind of know what you should do, and I know where this is going. The analyst at their best provides a space in which you develop a curiosity with your own unconscious, and neither you nor they know where that's going to end up. And that the analyst is not there to give advice about your love life uh, or to give advice about what you should do with your work uh, or whether you should break up with someone or not break up with someone. They avoid any type of advice which will always be uh, mired in the current culture and the values of that person, the values of society. 
but rather they punctuate your discourse and feed it back to you, helping you encounter yourself and your own division and your own ambivalence and your own struggles and doubt and complexity uh, in a way that might lead to a lightening of the suffering. So hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation and uh, I think it's going to be the first of a number of conversations that I have with Julie Reich and I'm looking to do uh, a book study uh, on her work uh, in the near future, at least on a couple of chapters, just so that we can kind of really interrogate it a little bit more. So enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Uh, I probably wanted to talk today a little bit about the uh, similarity between religion and psychotherapy, uh, continuity between them, considering that before therapeutic society and therapeutic society is considered a therapeutic culture is considered to be present condition of society. That is when we are psychologized, when we use psychological terms to analyze ourselves, to analyze relationship. This is how our common sense work. If you try to think about yourself, or about your relationship, you automatically think about them in psychological terms. Like that's, we perceive it as a true matter, um, psychological discourse. And normally, psychological culture is seen conventionally as a break from religious culture, when the dominating perspective, the perspective that used to dominate was perspective of religion or Christian perspective. Uh, that was a common sense of before. And Peter would claim, for example, that, and this is true, that um, Freud who is the one who initiated psychologization, who started talking therapy, to talk with people. This is what we do now. We uh, talk to psychotherapists. Uh, Freud is the one who started in Freud with psychoanalysis as the first type of the talking cue appears as the, in one, on one hand as, um, as a response to a feeling of death of God, inability to relate uh, to the religious discourse anymore. But on the other hand, I would see uh, continuity between religious discourse uh, and current psychotherapeutic discourse. And the continuity w can be seen in the function of salvation. And Freud is known for criticizing religion, right? He criticizes religion as maybe infantile fantasy. And he comprehends his psychoanalysis that he offers as a, not a substitution, but this breakthrough from religious perspective, uh, of the perspective of the fa fantasies that um, religion would offer. But at the same time, Freud, for example, in his correspondence to Oscar Peister, who is Protestant minister, would, they would look for ways how to combine psychoanalytic practice and uh, practice of the what Oscar Pfister did the mm, being minister so uh, the, and they would he would claim that um, they have similar um, in some way similar uh, goals in their practices of what they do and Freud would claim that uh, his initial version, original version of psychoanalysis was something different from priests on one hand, but on the other hand, it, um, he was trying to protect it from doctors. And this is where he fails. 
because especially with doctors because now well medic medicalization is also one of the dominating uh, perspectives that dominate current society and psychotherapy is seen as uh, it's the part of medicalized discourse so he was trying to protect it from both but at the same time uh, he would call psychoanalysis in his correspondence he would call it a cure of the soul which is not doctors and not um, priests but it's still this the thing for me is that it's still uh, from some perspective, it's still a function of salvation. And uh, when before the salvation was a salvation of a soul, now we see the salvation and salvation in the life after this earthly life. Now we see the salvation, the substitution that comes to substitute a Christian perspective. We at least aim for salvation in this life in a form of well-being, right? And this is how we, um, when we consult psychotherapist this is what we're looking for to find the salvation to build the successful life or well-being in some form and my problem so there is this continuity between religion and psychotherapy we're not that different um, uh, but th at the same time there is rapture between them but it's still one can find a continuity and this is this is the continuity so I have troubles relating to both um, I don't like both, or ra rather I have troubles relating to both precisely because of this continuity of salvation, or at least both or in their conventional form, conventional form that offers um, salvation. And what I'm trying to do, it's not because I see myself as, the, as they see this process as progress to something <laughs> beyond religion and psychoanalysis, it's rather them, them aging and start to be more grumpy and I have troubles relating it. Um, two things but um, at the same time I think that this sacred heart of both the Christianity and psychoanalysis in, is and I think it's everyone knows that that there is no salvation like it's that we want and precisely looking for salvation is a form of knowing this despair trying to get it it's, it's a form of not knowing it so the negative psychoanalysis so the negative practice that I'm trying to invent and failing is the form of not relating to um, each other through trying to save or offering salvation because it's in the form it's a form of always manipulation that there is someone um, the messiah you know who is offering <laughs> salvation who are themselves uh, have the despair but um, relating to each other not through the offering salvation like in a form of psychotherapy or in a religious form, but actually within the space of knowing that there is no salvation. It's like for people like me <laughs> who are not able to relate um, to conventional form of that offers some kind of various forms of salvation um, in a space of not of knowing that there is no um, salvation the way peter would call it is the salvation from salvation <laughs> something like it um, and the current things that i'm working on is um, self as interrelational the idea of a self uh, it's against ego psychology the idea of a self as not as interrelational that exists never exists independently of other self is other 
rather interconnection uh, in between selves and the idea of tra trauma as um, initiation instead of trauma as deviation. And th it has to do a little bit with depressive realism, depressive realism perspective that comprehends depression, uh, feeling of despair as uh, not deviation, not inadequate state, uh, not inadequate comprehension of reality, but actually adequate comprehension of reality. Because in conventional psychotherapeutic discourse, which is positively oriented, uh, trauma or depression would be seen as conditions that require cure and as inadequate comprehension of reality and people basically who are associated with trauma who are traumatized uh, would be seen as well inadequate right inadequately comprehending reality and mm, what interests me is rather seeing them as adequately comprehending reality is actually a trauma as initiation or trauma knowledge as actually um, the horror of encountering the absence of salvation like the life is meaningless like encountering the horror of uh, existence um, even losing words uh, in this process is in a way not being able to speak about certain experience uh, I would see as certain type of knowledge and also therapy another concept uh, is a therapy as a communion and it has to do uh, with what Peter uh, his the way you distinguish between community and communion whether the when the community is gathering of people who share uh, certain identities who share something yeah, it might be identity it might be enemy or uh, anything but um, communion on the other hand is the, uh, when people what connects them what brings them together is the fact that they share what i would call nothing or the death of god the loss so through sharing nothing and this kind of uh, therapy as not cure not uh, looking for salvation but uh, connecting on the different level of the absence of salvation or sharing nothing it, that's it <laughs> Great. Do you want to ask any questions before we kick in? Um, actually, that all made quite a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, I think. Um, I suppose maybe the only thing I, I'm, I would just... I, I, the, the question that I, I have, I guess, um, is, is community an end point? Well, not an end point, but... Uh, a goal for you and your work are you interested in like what you've talked about and it's i found it interesting that you ended on a community of people who if i'm following this right which is quite possible that i didn't but like uh <coughs> you know in the same way that pete has a talks about that community in terms of bringing together people who have embraced the slack or whatever um are are you seeking to do you see as an end point th that community for for your work as well yeah, the communion i don't have a goal of my mm. work yeah okay sorry <laughs> that's the important thing so basically uh because when you have a goal and it's problematic not to have a goal by the way but um when you have a goal it presupposes the 
uh, improvement. You can have point A and then you move to point B and you, you know, you have a goal, mm -hmm. which means there is going to be improvement or something going to be created at the end. And this is not um, the dimension where I'm operating. I used to maybe, um, but now I'm just exploring uh, something else that is not uh, improving the world or trying to make world better <laughs> better place like existing in the um, was in the space of disillusionment which is hard to be practical like it's not actually practical when you when you do and that's the problem with negative practice when practice presupposes that you have motivation to because you will have improvement as a result of this practice and what if we are all for example so depressed and we are getting depressed and disillusioned uh, in the world nothing makes sense anymore uh, no matter what we do it just gets worse like we solve one problem and multiple other problem arrive I even worse ones than before <laughs> mm. in this space where we don't believe that um, any action will improve anything uh, so rather this dimension and I'm not sure I don't want anything <laughs> anymore to be honest I think there's a real continuity in what you're doing and what I'm trying to do and one of the ways I describe self-help is exactly what you said self-help is how to get from A to B that's you know the core of all self-help is you're at A you don't want to be at A you want to be at B how do you get from A to B and you're critiquing this this kind of notion now, what do you think of the idea? Because what I see, sense of, I think you're offering something in an alternative to that. And for me to put Christian language on it is I think what you're talking about is what's called grace, which is not you're moving from A to B, but you're realizing that A does not equal A. And whenever you say A does not equal A, that means that you are not yourself so like one example is imposter syndrome like for neurotics who feel I'm a teacher but I'm not really a teacher or I'm in love but I'm not really in love or that got that kind of sense in which you experience your own self-division and your own self-questioning your own doubts you're providing a space instead of going like you have to move from A to B it's like just be just accept your own dividedness your own incompleteness but then, and the thing that you want to resist saying, I think, but is it is that there's something transformative about that letting go of the frenetic pursuit of of completeness? Like there's something that seems very beneficial about that move. But do you feel a certain resistance to even saying it like that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Um it's interesting with uh, instead of moving from point a to point b just experiencing maybe a contradiction mm -hmm. and uh, this i would agree with like endless contradiction and with the life and death we were discussing it before there is this contradiction that when both approaching death uh, and being alive uh, they both exist in they don't coincide with each other there, there is no way to bring those together but at the same time this is how uh, existence goes on through the contradiction of life and death when it's um, both at the same time living and uh, dying so there's this contradiction um, 
maybe I'm trying also to find a way to exist within it, to withstand it, uh, to find ways to feel it. But at the same time, uh, it's also necessary um, to escape from it and saying that it brings transformation. I would resist it because it still, you know, it brings something. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, transformation presupposes that it's improvement. So it, I would say it's uh, the same trans- transformation and failing to transform. Yes. And it is, it's a really difficult paradox because if you say to someone, you have to lose your life in order to find it, as soon as you say, oh, so in order to find my life, I have to lose it, suddenly it's economic. It's an economic thing. You're going like, okay, I'm going to lose my life to find it. In a sense, you've just got to lose your life. However, what do you say when you kind of like, you know, this notion that potentially in making a space for this dimension of being uh, actually does help to alleviate modern symptoms of depression, melancholy or ADHD or, or, or burnout, fatigue, all of the things that we're seeing that arise from a society of pure positivity, be all that you can be, life hack, you know, seize the day. The, so the, the demand to enjoy, the super egoic demand to enjoy that we live in today, which breeds obviously fatigue and burnout. In one sense, by seeing through all of that as you know, potentially, I want to say could ease modern symptoms. But by saying that, I make it into uh, a positive psychology. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this partially what I coincide with is the critique, which is quite common now, uh, critique of positive psychology and this demand to enjoy like the ideal of human being uh, that psychotherapeutic society imposes that the one human being supposed to be happy not depressed this like proper healthy human being and if, if you feel depressed something is wrong with you you're supposed to go in the therapy this is now criticized as positive psychology and uh, problem my problem with it uh, and I kind of coincide with it because I don't claimed that it's the deviated type of human being, the one who is suffering uh, with depression. Um, That's the stuff I'm interested in. But the reason why it would be criticized, how it justified its criticism is that uh, it makes us even less happy because if the depression is stigmatized, then if you're depressed, you feel even worse because now on the top of that, like your moral failure, now on top that you're just depressed, plus you, there's something wrong with you and makes your depression even worse. So it's still quite positive in this move, uh, criticizing stigmatization of depression because it makes us even more depressed. Like it's very hard to escape this logic that we are doing something not in order to uh, escape depression, but uh, for just no reason. Yes, yes. I mean, it, like I you know, lived in LA for a lot of years, which is the mecca of the pursuit of happiness. Everyone is pursuing happiness. It's the mecca of the promise of wholeness and completeness. And the message of you can be free not to be happy, but you can be free from happiness uh, is interesting. Because like, if you think of a party where everyone's doing drugs and everyone's having a good time, but you can go into the bathroom and go, thank God, right? And take a breather and be a bit depressed and go back into the party. But in LA, they're doing drugs in the bathroom, right? There's literally nowhere you can go to be unhappy. It's it's the oppressiveness of pure positivity. And 
so there's something I do think there's a really good news in this freedom from happiness um, but it, it does create all of these paradoxes just to give a bit of clarification as well as like when we talk about positive psychology there's a, most psych- psychoanal- or most psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, ego psychology, object relation psychology, you find in all of these, to a certain extent, the idea that Julie looks at in her book and explores is a post-traumatic subject, also a pre-traumatic subject, that it's almost like, like a religious thing of there's a, there's a blessing, there's an original wholeness, then there's a fall where maybe your parents give you some sort of trauma and through analysis you can find a way to overcome that trauma and connect with with uh, other people in a in a healthy way um so that kind of religious narrative of blessing fall and redemption is mirrored in lots of therapeutic practices uh ego psychology as well so uh what we're talking about here is at first quite counterintuitive it's you start with a fall life is a trauma uh we are all like in other words you you may be afraid of death but actually you already have died there's something about being born as a subject that is a fundamental loss there is an original sin original loss then we fantasize that there was a original blessing a wholeness and then we long for getting that back and that's kind of what your work is i think fundamentally critiquing is that three-tier structure uh, with the idea of there's, there's, there is a fundamental catastrophe that is existence. As she, Julie says in her book, that life is a constellation of death. <laughs> that constellation is a shape of stars that, you know, you maybe see a bear or something like that. And uh, life is one of the shapes of, of death, that there's, they're, they're intertwined and you can't get away from that. It's just different perspective. First, it's uh, also attitude, because I'm not saying, some people might claim that I do, but I don't. Mm. I'm not saying how human beings supposed to be. Mm. And it's like, uh, I'm not, I don't know. But I would maybe criticize a question, at least, um, the current understanding of a human being, the common one, that is the untraumatized one, and see... uh, the different alternative version not claiming that it's better because it's not it's like feels horrible (laughs) (laughs) all this knowledge but still it's it is an alternative to explore and it's very interesting because like this dimension where someone is talking me uh, about human being not knowing how they supposed to be and not trying to fix anything not knowing how to fix anything like and i would claim that this is a mm, this is a voice of depression talking uh through words or through failing to talk even and voice of depression is some something that we avoid to be heard like it doesn't have a voice whatever someone claims that they are depressed within the psychotherapeutic discourse and in common sense um existence we would think that it's they're not talking it's there's when they're too sad to be adequate kind of they're not we should not listen to them to what they say life is meaningless i don't want to exist anymore it doesn't make sense it won't get better and it's it it's seen as a symptom to cure like it won't be heard automatically when you mention something too negative it um 
won't be heard and I wanted to create space of uh, just exploring what is there what one can tell us and people with trauma is even worse like there is if you have post-traumatic uh, syndrome it means that you need to get rid of it like whatever mm, thinking thoughts come into your mind like it's not you that's the so it's super stigmatized and it's interesting what if it's not what if the trauma of for example losing significant other and what it tells you you can go on so what if it's true like that's and this is the truth um, I'm not saying that it is. I'm just exploring the opposite perspective. That um, yeah. Stupid question time. Okay, so I I suppose in order to try and maybe ex um, extrapolate this into a place where people can, what I am hearing, I guess, and I would like to ask the question: Is this even borderline right? Um, like. I think about it in terms of like, if, if we were going to talk about your motivation, I've just heard a little bit of it now in terms of like, I think about it like trying to move the needle, like in a sense, because you feel like the, you know, the capitalist, I would look at it through the lens of capitalism in a sense, in terms of, you know, quantifying everything and everything having to be, you know, left brain X plus Y equals Z, you know, everything being very logical, like religion and the salvation arc that you talked about. So in a sense, is is um, is it maybe easier to understand <clears throat> what you're trying, your motivation in that, through that lens in terms of like just pushing people? And this is what, again, I think philosophy should do, you know, or is, is make people go to dark places so that, you know, they can understand a spectrum of ideas as opposed to just like settling and not thinking about these things or is that part of your motivation anyway or or you said you're exploring these ideas which is why i'm sort of saying like you know i think that's like that, that's what people like that's what thinkers do right they go and explore these little ideas so that you know people who have jobs don't have to right <laughs> um yeah m maybe uh well it's not motivation it's just uh, some form it's not even interest to explore it and I'm not forcing anyone to explore it on the other hand on the contrary I would be really like careful <laughs> um, with bringing people here in the dark place but on the other hand I'm just saying what I'm saying uh, stupid things but <laughs> and whoever can relate to it they just um, they would if they need someone to I'm um, in the dark place waiting for them <laughs> so mm. they're not alone if they ended up uh, in a dark place instead of escaping if they want to wander around um, they're not alone well they are alone but they're not alone and being alone or we're all alone and being alone yeah I mean this is where you know I I'm going to put this I'm more again I'm more positive bent on it but push back against that as well but um you know a lot of depression you could say is connected to a fantasy of completeness so depression comes along because you broke up with a person and you think i'll never be happy again and so the depression is actually very connected to this fantasy of of getting to a place of wholeness and even if you think that i'll never get that in reality you have possible worlds in your head where you could have been happy where things could have been different and in a way if you can 
turn disillusionment up to 11, right? So not only disillusionment in your current life, go like, I'm never going to be happy in this life, but also there was no life that I could have got rid of my longing and dissatisfaction because that's part of what it is to be human. Um, again, there's there seems to be a, an effect of that 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 is interesting from that very insight. You know, where and now here's the thing that and I told McGowan, who's a thinker we both respect and like. Um, I like in in the book, you go right, McGowan talks about enjoyment. I'm going to avoid talking about enjoyment, but I'm going to bring enjoyment in. Um, like, in very briefly, psychoanalysis, you could say, has three notions of desire. This is very helpful, I think, at times. Is you, they're all interconnected, but I, if you want to separate them, you can talk about demand, desire, and drive. And if you kind of want to know what demand is, it's like an infant makes a demand, cries, wants food, or wants warmth, right? So that's a, it's almost like a, an instinct, an instinctual demand. Um, and we often think that that's what desire is. You want something like a cup of coffee, right? But that's demand. Desire is slightly different. Desire is connected not to an object, but to a lost object. It's connected to you desire what you don't have, that when you get it, it loses its aura. It's, it's connected to prohibition and possibility. So for example, some people can only love if they're jealous because the jealousy is my partner is there, but they're somewhere else. Their mind is with somebody else. And they think they're jealous because they love, but they love because they're jealous. The jealousy is an impossibility that you know generates desire. Um, or, or impossibility, you can only desire who's a person who is with somebody else. You always find yourself desiring someone who's married to somebody else or impossible to get. And if you get them, your desire no longer functions. So that's kind of how desire for, in, in, loosely. And then drive one could say is enjoyment of loss itself so if demand is want of an object and desire is want of a lost object drive is want of loss that's the gambler who actually is getting enjoyment from losing they're not getting their enjoyment from winning they're actually getting something from losing or you where you repeat traumatic relationship styles now i say all of this <laughs> as a way of saying that um it's not for me simply that we are incomplete, dissatisfied, that there's a there's an inherent castration to existence. But I kind of want to push and go, and that's is that not where enjoyment is as well? But that there's something that that that's that's where enjoyment comes from. Is that to be human is to is to somehow get something from this lack and. We suffer it, but we also enjoy it. Obviously, jouissance, jouissance is a term which means in pleasurable suffering. Um, so I'm saying all of this to go, this is not as depressing as it might sound. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know that I wouldn't use term enjoyment, which is yeah. a problem maybe because it's one of the main uh, term in psychoanalysis, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, and pleasure in Freudian psychoanalysis. What I do, it's my innovation. I just don't use it <laughs> because <laughs> I don't like it. And it's there is the uh, certain value in just simply avoiding and trimming psychoanalysis from this perspective, because I claim that once we bring enjoyment into discussion, there is something that we're missing. And for example. Uh, it was 
problem that was criticized was uh, like with victims of abuse or something like it. If you cannot, you cannot discuss enjoyment in, when you talk about them because it's like really not cool first. But it's also maybe in general talking about, about human being, not only people who are suffering like for uh, talking about uh, those who suffer from trauma. It's we feel that something wrong adding this into discussion enjoyment. We maybe want to because it's hard to tolerate reality that they're representing. There's something it's like their fault. You're not fully seeing the suffering that they represent because it's it's unbearable. And therefore we want to add enjoyment like but maybe l you need to suffer maybe to feel enjoyment like we want to add enjoyment to it and I'm what I'm doing I'm not adding it like mm. they don't even if they like it's not my business <laughs> you know <laughs> it's to fully recognize and to uh, what they represent is to not to admix like avoid um, talking about pleasure here and this is not about those people uh, but maybe about subject in general what I do starting like completely get rid of the discussion of enjoyment in relation to the subject. Uh, just assuming that it's pure suffering with some periods of rest that, um, you know, to uh, just suffer. And this is the opposite perspective to positive perspective of convention conventional positive perspective when we perceive life as, you know, ideally happiness, enjoyment, and the deviation from it, the suffering would be deviation from it. So I just, they're both obviously in life, the dialectics or something, but it just opposite to uh, conventional perspective was the emphasis on uh, that might even avoid suffering or seeing suffering as deviation. What if it's just assume that it's pure suffering starting from the child who is not, and I don't think that, I mean, uh, I'm trying not to comprehend the child infant as egoistic and demanding enjoyment. I think the child doesn't know itself. It's not egoistic because it's it's not separated. And I don't think we are ever separated. Like we exist in a boundary between um, in between selves. But uh, so for Freud, child was egoistic. Um, in search of pleasure and using manipulating mother and this is how we more or less conventionally think about the subject and the infant but what if it's just suffering not separated doesn't know what it wants just cries <laughs> like there is no and we we think that we can uh, help uh, by for example breastfeeding infant and they feel enjoyment but what if you just you know uh, shut them <laughs> with your breast and you cannot hear them <laughs> for a little while they're suffering and that's all you don't have suffering you don't have um, pleasure here that's just the whole story um i'm yeah. not saying that it is it's just my yeah yes no no yeah oh yeah okay well no it's, and that's why i love how you're describing it's going like i'm this is uh, something you're exploring. This is like a, a converse, a question. Like, so whenever I was talking with you last night, my, the first thought I had of what does this look like in practice is, um, and unfortunately I looked this guy up because I mentioned his name to you, Jean Vanier, who was a philosopher who gave up philosophy and set up these communities called L'Arche communities and they're all around 37 countries around the world. Um, fortunately, there's a few sexual uh, abuse allegations against him at the moment I didn't realize when I looked him up today so ignoring that um, he just died a few years ago but 
the, the large communities were communities where people with very serious mental and physical disabilities lived alongside people without. And it wasn't hierarchical. In a, in a way, you know, obviously the people who were able-bodied were helping, mm. but it was they were living together and there was this mutuality of bearing witness to each other. And uh, there's no sense in which when you can say to someone who is incredibly physically and mentally disabled, oh, just manifest and, you know, the secret and you can, you know, what do you, what you know, you can fulfill your dreams. I mean, it, it suddenly becomes offensive, that kind of positive language. But what all, all you can do in a sense is somehow bear witness to that. Um, is that a kind of a, like a, a practice, is that a way that this might look in practice, uh, like a negative psychoanalysis? So there's no positivity, no healing, there is a living with. Yeah, so uh, what I think is that we are already in the paradox of trying to invent negative practice uh, at the same time it's already exists and there is nothing else <laughs> like we are all crippled mm. um, hiding it maybe but somehow existing with each other so it's kind of the world is this place already and maybe before uh, I and there's the problem with depressive realism this perspective um, of depression as more adequate perception with reality is feeling superior because you are uh, as generally people who are uh, pessimistic they would feel superior to those who are optimistic and I had something like it you know this is my I'm exposing a truth I know the truth <laughs> mm -hmm. now but now I don't I think it's just both the negativity and the positivity positive culture and this negative is just both pathetic ways to just deal <laughs> with it so i think it's like the world is like that already so i'm not sure what i'm doing yes um yeah so is there i mean again you, it's amazing you make me look like i'm mr happy right and, and my and i take a philosophy of kind of um uh embracing this fundamental lack <laughs> um but is there a sense in which you could say or how do you feel about like that even this encounter with a type of truth because in a sense you're making a truth claim of sorts there's a there's a claim that that there's a fundamental asymmetry to reality exhibited in your book you talk in evolution but exhibited also in quantum mechanics in also mathematics and in completeness and there's like so this this asymmetry this antagonism is is riven throughout everything in fact that's why anything exists and we are part of that and so potentially uh experiencing that truth at the very least um uh potentially uh is is a good I mean, I'm trying to try and think. I want to keep wanting to say that there's there's something potentially uh, trans. I would say emancipatory about your work because it emancipates from the frenetic pursuit. You know, you mentioned capitalism. Like, so it, capitalism is interesting because, in one sense, we th we think it's at the level of demand. There's certain objects that we want and we go for, but it functions at the level of desire 
what capitalism is in its technical term is uh, Marx called it the move from CMC to MCM. So uh, CMC means you have a commodity. C stands for commodity. I make a widget. And then I sell that widget to make money. And then I take that money and I buy another commodity. Right. So that's, you know, that we all understand that. Mm-hmm. But if there's a slight shift where you go to, then you have money to then invest in commodities to make more money. You're now, your enjoyment is now on the abstract increase of capital, which begins to become divorced from objects. And if you've ever done cryptocurrency, you know this, where you start to just get obsessed with the abstract increase. And, you know, it's all, they always laugh at people who are dying as millionaires, Bitcoin millionaires, who are lying on a, you know, homeless on the street because, because they're now their desire is on the abstract accumulation of capital. Um, so in a way, your work is a counter to that or is an exposure of that fantasy which potentially has political connotations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, uh, maybe, but capitalism is also good in being wasteful. There's the still require, it needs waste to build, to make profit out of it. So the core of capitalism is the opposite of capitalism, is problematic about it. And this is the very political, as you know, political discourse is a problem for me because I'm wondering if the language of not improvement even fits, if it's political, Mm. if you can say anything negative within the space of political because all the political projects are about improvement. Like from point A to point B, where it's, society is better. So it is. Um, it's hard to say if this is political. And I'm I'm wondering uh, again. Maybe the difference here, similar to difference of communion and community, is communion still community? It's like similar in asking: Is this negative? Is political? It's still at the core of human bond even political bond but it's the negative core but uh how it manifests itself it's like losing this core mm-hmm. in form of capitalism for example and just to clarify that distinction because which we came to separately interestingly I, i've enjoyed this distinction between community and communion so community you can think of as a group that comes together through something shared a shared belief a shared set of practices, shared identities, shared enemy, um, shared goals. Uh, and I was looking for a term that described something different to that, but a, but a social bond. And so communion, I really like because a communion is technically a meal around a shared loss, the death of God. So technically in Christianity, the Eucharistic moment is there's the death of God, and you have this meal in remembrance, a wake, a kind of funeral for the death of the absolute. So communion is a group of people who are gathered together, not by shared identity, shared goals, shared positivity, but around a shared nothingness, that what we all share, in some ways, some people in a very extreme, different way, but we all at our core share nothing. We all have nothing in common. Um, and that's that's the difference in a communion and a communion. and the AA for me is a kind of almost an example of that in the sense of AA is not about identities it's about you share a similar trauma now it's a trauma around alcohol 
but you're there because of the shared trauma. And in the 12-step programs, the first step is step zero, which is really grace. We're technically in AA. You just accept who you are. You say your name. My name is Peter. I'm an alcoholic. You don't have to change. You don't have to do anything. You just, in a sense, admit the trauma that you are in a community of other people who have also got that trauma. But for me, that step zero is the fundamentally transformative step. But I love what you do, which is go like, yeah, but as soon as you start giving people hope, you kind of, there's something lost. So I'm struggling. I mean, your book, I said this to you, like one of the things your book did for me, it was such a, um, it challenged me to go, have I made an economics out of the kind of system paratheology? Because economics were, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 making money out of it. No, not, not enough. Um, uh, but yeah, but in economics, we're going like, yes, you can kind of like just accept that that there is trauma, that there is a type of lack. Um, but if you do that, then everything's going to be better. And by doing that, you actually prevent the the transformation. But you don't even want to say there is a transformation. I mean, so I just want to. Like as a, I suppose that a lot of the lens for this has been around um, psychoanalysis. Um, oh God, Peter's left, and now, <laughs> and now I feel like I'm completely out of my depth. Okay, um, I, I suppose I just kind of a lot of it. I'm listening to and I'm going, okay, uh, I'm bringing my own experience to it. I suppose in a sense, it's like um, what you talk about. It's kind of not. Uh, I find it quite hard to relate to you on a personal level because I'm quite a happy person, <laughs> right? And I, and that and I suppose in a sense I can you I know I know that's <laughs> what you're going to say, but like but the, I guess the point being um, I can absolutely see how you know the work would be really important for people at a different you know stage of life or in a different situation. It's also important for people like me to realize how lucky. You know, I often sort of think about, like, even if I was to get hit by a truck tomorrow, I've had more happiness in the life that I've had than probably most people in the world. Like, you know, there's so much trauma, so much, you know, pain, so much everything in the world. And I've had not had my fair share at all, you know. So um, in a sense, maybe that's coming, maybe, maybe. But, like, um, I'm just trying to think about, like, you know, what what would you say your work would how does that what would you want to say to, to me <laughs> i guess <laughs> it's like what you want to say to people in my situation who think yeah that's fine but i, I actually don't feel like that am i kidding myself i would just avoid you normally <laughs> okay all right sorry <laughs> that's why yeah 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 but secretly i would think about you that you know following kierkegaard this perception of happiness as despair it's not that you don't know that you're desperate that you feel you have this is the form of despair but like perceiving happiness in a different way as a well for me form of despair but still um, it's not, you know, it's like seeing, uh, being a shelter, you still know the difference of other people, you're still encountering it, and it's like you are protected maybe from it, but it's still, you know, 
you understand what it means there are other suffer and that's the problematic with working with individuals like the world uh, is enclosed within the individual in, in conventional comprehension in psychotherapy like this is the human and uh, was their self and ideally they're supposed to be happy like that's what the product supposed to be but um, it's larger than that and it's not and again this point a where someone might be not happy enough to be considered healthy and point b will bring them to um to the state of happiness and yay <laughs> that's the healthy subject now but um the thing the trauma knowledge what it um exposes in a way is it's the whole thing crumbles as self as separate the time that flows from point a to point b was possible uh, improvement it's more like uh, and it it's the illusion is the trauma will be healed and that there is post-traumatic state when you undergo psychotherapy and there is no trauma anymore you're not traumatized like within what trauma signifies is you encounter something unbearable which reveals to you at the same time uh, that the things are possible in the world it always stays with you even if you feel happy after it it's happy you feel happy as you know it's a miracle so it's still it's like there it's not really happy <laughs> happiness it is happiness but you're blessed but you know it's also imp it includes this kind of happiness knowledge of that something happened with you in the past like trauma something happened with other people and it will never get better because it existed in the future like and we all have this encounter in our lives personal lives this thing that we are not able to go on with even in the loss of someone it will never get better in and this is the truth of trauma at some point the pain never goes away it just always stays and it's the happiness comes as a miracle after it it's like miracle the contradiction it's not the state where you healed you feel happy it still includes it it's, it can be seen as a moment of rest plus it always happened in the past it was it's going to be always there forever and it means also what trauma reveals to you that it happened to people a uh, similar thing in the past too and it will always stay there in a past in someone else's past and it will never like and it's happening in the world even if you just know that now you know that this thing happening in the world to other people and it's always there in their past like and even if you're personally happy uh, you know that somewhere in the world this is happening and this is like trauma knowledge for me it reveals like this whole the time collapses the and of course you want to um, escape in the illusion that personality might be healed from trauma the trauma is so much more it's like the opening up the world so <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean look I, I suppose i'm thinking about what you're talking about like northern irish people know better than most about trauma you know we're a, we're a traumatized society essentially you know because we've had a conflict and which pete and i grew up with you know um so i suppose in a sense a lot of that happiness comes from the what i perceive to be my happiness comes from the fact that that's over you know what i mean so the fact that there's been this kind of really horrendous conflict that we've lived through 
um, and it affected most you know a lot of people in this country a lot worse than me but it was still I didn't think it was affecting me when it was affecting me and it was actually only afterwards that I realized how shit it had been when it, when that sort of circumstance is removed so in a sense like that's a, a lot of you know what I consider to be my positiveness if you want to say that is comes from having been through that trauma if you like um uh, yeah I don't know that's just a thought rather than a, <laughs> than a question I suppose but and how are we doing time wise is it yep yeah because I have oh, we're good for opening up for I questions say, yeah. can I do one more comment yeah, I guess I, I could I do this all night yeah, but yeah. I do want to open up and hear from you guys and online um okay I, my my throwout on this is oh, I feel like I should define trauma, but that might be a quite a that might take us down a, a route. I'll say one thing about trauma very very quickly um, and see what you think about this definition, the psychoanalytic definition. But um, in a way, it, it, the first thought Freud had about trauma was trauma is in a way a kind of um, a short circuiting of an, something happens to you that you cannot symbolize that you know some abuse for example that you can't the child can't put into any symbolic form and is is you're overwhelmed and saturated but then from this those called the seduction theory but after that and into Lacan you have this notion that the very core of trauma is actually uh, the question of what does the other want that the very early on the infant encounters the desire of others the parental desire and there's the presence and absence of the caregiver. So the mother, for example, comes and goes, and the child has to come to terms with this presence and absence. But then there's a more fundamental present absence, which is the presence of the other's desire, which is an absence going, what is the other desire? Why do they desire me? Or what do they desire? The child starts to look at what the parent desires. Their, their, their gaze alights on the desire of their parents. And this question, what does the other want from me, is something that... Uh, you know, because one carries, and uh, it's uh, it's a it's where the source of a lot of pleasure comes from, and a lot of tra- a lot of fear as well. What does the other want from me? Um, and uh, that's see that that's where I kind of like start to go. That's where the subject starts to experience this lack. Is it's the lack of the other's desire. Um, so Freud had an example of this uh, woman who. She went to therapy. She was in a shop, and she thought so the guys were laughing at her in the shop, the shopkeepers, and she found this very disturbing. And through analysis, she uh, came up that when she was very young, the shopkeeper touched her and was smiling in a very kind of this kind of like leering kind of way. And the when she was fourteen years old, and she thought that these people were laughing at her in the shop, there was a sense in which it was a reliving of this early experience of what does the other want from me these people are laughing they've got something what is it they want and uh so they kind of the trauma of the adulthood was a reflection of this this trauma what does the other want from me and that can never be answered because the other doesn't know what they want we none of us kind of know what we want there's a certain kind of unknowing so we're all marked always by a fundamental unknowing and an impossibility of answering that question and I don't know why I was saying that. Oh, yeah, but you might want to comment on that. And then I'll say this. Is that the, for me, uh, you know, and this is the religious dimension, so what I'm trying to do is drive theory and religion. 
and you and you know Todd McGowan is doing drive theory in politics you're doing drive theory in terms of negative psychoanalysis and what I'm trying to do is that in religion all religions you're alienated from God or the absolute or truth whether it's real or an illusion there is something that you have to a veil of illusion you have to pierce to see the reality or some you know uh, actual event that has to take place to get you back into wholeness with God so there's an alienation between you and the absolute um, in this notion of a radical reading of Christianity the idea is that you're not just alienated from God God is alienated from God my God my God why have you forsaken me is this notion that that there is a, a divide or a gap or a, a trauma within the heart of God God is traumatized so, so it's not just you're a traumatized subject, but God isn't. God is a hyster an hysteric. God is a traumatized subject, and God isn't just the absolute. All reality is traumatized. All reality is is riven with conflict. That move from saying I am alienated from reality to the idea that reality is alienated from itself, and then symbolically embracing that through music through liturgy, through spoken word. And like, for me, that's, that, that does something. What do you think? I'll leave you that and then we'll open it up. Yeah, I would define trauma just mm, in more simple way, just the rapture uh, in non-coincidence. So maybe uh, second lyric, the real was you encountering trauma of existence, this non-coincidence. Um, and which might be seen as the heart of uh, existence. One might call it God, but you can also call it uh, rapture, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so encountering the horror of existence and horror precisely is when your expectations are not met or um, incongruity in a way. And uh, the thing is talking about embracing it uh, that it does something, it does something. <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, ex and this is the paradox of maybe what I'm trying to do, maybe what you're trying to do. Uh, establishing practice uh, that would embrace it, uh, work not on the level of escaping it, but embracing it. But at the same time, it's uh, me meaningless because that's what, what we do anyways. You know? It's a super wasteful act to try to establish this kind of community because this this is the only type of community <laughs> people we do it anyways, yeah. and in maybe it's a cool thing to just do it <laughs> even though it's already there. It's like meaningless act of uh, of trying to do something that there is no point doing. <laughs> Anybody here, first start, want to jump in with a thought, a comment, question? And Tom, we can look to you. Is there stuff online? So, so John had a question. It's quite long. I'll, I'll I know John. Yeah, John's a smart guy. Yeah, so so um, was not Freud already a nihilist and a cynic? Barring ego psychology, is psychoanalysis actually about salvation? Or is it already about forging a modus vivendi? with the cruelty of existence. He goes on to say, without solving existential questions, as someone who has suffered from severe depression at times, surely it is better not to suffer from such negative emotions. Is the opposite really salvation? 
Yeah, we can say that both uh, religion and uh, psychoanalysis are cynical because they never get what they <laughs> offer. They never get you to salvation. And in Freud case, it's uh, like the beyond cynical, the way he was suffering with depression all his life. We couldn't cure himself from depression, though charging a lot of money. <laughs> um, kind of not promising salvation explicitly, but people were hoping and he was exploiting these hopes, even though you don't giving it, but you're still uh, exploiting the hope for the cure. So it is cynical, but maybe uh, I'm trying to, I'm looking for other way of being cynical, like actually offering nothing, <laughs> still demanding to to be paid, <laughs> but <laughs> at least I'm honest. I'm not exploiting the. I'm trying not to. Because it's good news. I mean, like I've said. Uh, what is good news? I think it's good news that you can't be happy and that life is suffering. I think that's brilliant <laughs> news. And I think it's bad news to say life is wonderful and you can be whole and complete. Like that's good news. It's actually bad news. But I think you know the idea that we can be alone together that we have nothing in common that that nothing is the eternal and that as you as you touch the nothing you touch the eternal i think that's good news but i also love say i do love that you because i think that in order to kind of get to the other side you have to believe there is no other side but i do i don't know so i'm, <laughs> I'm caught in this thing i mean freud and you know famously you know he was a therapist really until you know, 1920, where he published a book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and that's where he kind of discovers or uncovers the death drive to some extent. And uh, you you mentioned actually there's a woman who wrote about the death drive before that. He footnotes, what was her name? Sabine Ashpirain. Yeah, who have only heard the name. I want to read her article. Um, but this that was when Freud basically became a slightly pessimist because that's where he was like, oh, there's some dimension of us that doesn't want to be healed. And then after that, there has been an attempt with Freud and then post-Freudians to either deny drive, which is one of the ways, or try to go, well, what does a therapy look like that takes seriously drive? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a bit more optimistic about psychoanalysis potentially, but, but what, what unifies us potentially is you're doing, like, you know, turning analysis against therapy and I'm turning religion against salvation. Or, yeah, and th that's where I think there's an interesting continuity. They already know it from the title of the... <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So the next one's from Catherine, um, and it says, I feel like I'm bombarded from every direction, not with Peter's demand to enjoy, but with the opposite demand, to give up perfection, give up trying, give up perfect happiness. But this feels just as empty to me. Why? Can I come on the back that as well? Like, the thing that I don't really believe in what you're saying, I don't really believe you, because I don't think you think that no thing is better than another thing. So you say there's no value in going to try to get from A to B. There's no, there's no point. But I don't believe you. I don't think you live your life that way. I don't think anybody lives their life that way. Because I think, even as Adam said, in the troubles, I think it is better that we don't live in the troubles. We're not all saved. It's not all perfect. We're not all fixed. I'm 100% behind you there. But the idea that no thing is better than any other thing is absurd. And you've made no evidence to suggest that would be the case you're making as a claim, but I don't think it's true. I don't even think you think it's true. <laughs> so I, I'm just intrigued by this. The one phrase you said I thought was fascinating was horror is when your expectations aren't met. Uh, and 
I don't think that is horror. I think when your expectations met is an opening to a relationship. So when the child, as Pete said, recognizes the disjuncture in desire, that is the point at which the child becomes a subject to some degree and therefore can begin to have a relationship. In fact, has to have a relationship, otherwise, otherwise life is truly, as you say, just suffering and that's and everything else is the illusion. Happiness is the illusion. But I don't think that's horror. I think it's the opening to relationship. So I think you're making a, a claim that is not actually true. And upon you're building that very interesting philosophy, but that seems to be the, the disjuncture of peace, where I agree with you that there is no happiness and no salvation, but I don't agree with you that nothing is better than anything else. That is the end of politics, it is the end of ethics, and I think it's the end of relationship. Yeah, I, it's even worse than that, this contradiction, because uh, partially, like it's two dimensions. One, uh, which I think is the core dimension, and they get in touch occasionally. And I, instead of perceiving it as a deviation, the dimension of depression, like what you feel when you're depressed, that it's not getting better, there is no difference, like it's all only horror. That's what depression opened up, this dimension. And I think uh, that this dimension is um, basic, just as hypothesis. But of course, there is other dimension in which I'm functioning even now. The fact that I'm talking about something, like the very speech it brings me to, like there's a sentence and <laughs> uh, some of them are, uh, make sense, you know? So it's, and the fact that I'm physically here, I traveled from point A to point B, C, D <laughs> mm. <laughs> to get there. Three uh, here, trees, but I think, is it? <laughs> like the very, it, it is, there is hypocrisy in this, like non-coincidence between me traveling here to tell you something and me claiming that life is horror doesn't make sense because there are no words there to, and it is. Um, why do you because I want to give voice to this other dimension, explore it instead of, uh, instead of simply escaping it, like not seen it not given voice to it but it doesn't make sense that much because it's the voice of it it's not words it's like rather failure to talk to communicate so i'm yeah and i'm failing mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean one of the ways that todd mcgowan does it and which you know and be interested in how much you go with this but todd he basically says that at a conscious level we are utilitarian so our, our consciousness is we want to maximize pleasure, minimize pain, get utility, whatever. And the unconscious is the logic of, of self-sabotage. And we are the coincidence of those, <laughs> of those two things. And I quite like that because I go like, but yeah, and, and that's why I actually taught, Todd McCoy helped me clarify in my head why in a way you can never make the unconscious conscious. If, if Todd McGowan's right on that, then you can never make the unconscious conscious because we can never consciously act against our own self-interest, even in masochism or whatever it's to do with pleasure, that that in one sense there is a logic going on within us that is always going on behind our back, but our consciousness is always, you know, wanting to, maxim to, to maximize pleasure, minimize pain, to have utility, and... And that's where I kind of see the two as really intertwined. You have to kind of try to do justice to both. But I also really respect how you 
kind of go right i want to go as deep into the object as possible without this mm. kind of you kind of utility yeah i would question this and in in a way it solves the problem like there is unconscious there the real thing and it's self-sabotaging it's the horror repetition of the same and there is the conscious level this la 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 you know subject wants pleasure <laughs> and improvement and the level d we exist on and we don't have actually access to unconscious that uh, we are driven by but I would even question this because it's still I would question the conscious subject of the pleasure that we are utilitarian on a conscious level because I think uh, it's also a matter of interpretation. I would try to bring to see conscious subject as not utilitarian. And there is the way to do it through comprehending through talking about love or anything like act of kindness and uti utilitarian perspective would comprehend el any altruistic behavior we do it because it brings us happiness because it brings us pleasure it's not but there is also other thing that is self-destructive you sacrifice yourself to other uh, and you dissolve as a self into other it's not and it's not because it gives you pleasure it might but it's not the thing mm. But it's a, the example, say, the gambler. Gambler consciously thinks that they want the money. They want to win. So I would say that's the consciousness. But unconsciously, it's the losing that, that, that they're driven by. So the, but in that analogy, what do you think of that analogy? Because at the conscious level, the gambler does think that they, or, or the person who keeps on sabotaging their relationships, and they think they're, they want the person but actually what they want is the ongoing failure. But but as I say, at a conscious level, if you ask them, they go, no, I want everything to be great. I don't know why I keep flying off the handle. You know, I don't enjoy that. But is that how? Yeah, there's the problem with psychoanalytic position of an analyst for me is that like they know, unlike the subject, um, they know the truth mm -hmm. that, and the subject is kind of stupid and, and they don't know, but we know. I think that subject knows, like it's there is something else, maybe some kind of form of knowledge that uh, they won't express. But I would just suggest that they know. Yeah, that oh, I like that. Analyst yeah. is not smart to know, but. Um, and I agree with that. Like, and you know, Lacan says the analyst is the subject supposed to know. So actually, the analyst sh is not the expert and should not think of themselves as the expert. But the analyzant thinks they're the expert, and the fantasy that the analyst is the expert allows a certain access to the unknown knowledge that you're describing. But I agree, like any forms of therapy where the analyst is the subject that does know. Yeah, I think that I think there's real problems with that. You know, um, yeah. Yes, so I would question the position of an analyst and of a psychotherapist as a position of expert of uh, someone who knows, which means to bring salvation. There is a technique to save someone, but it's problematic also the when you the analysis the way it's supposed to be subject the analyst who doesn't know it doesn't provide a salvation. It's still kind of knowing, mm. knowing that you don't have to know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's also, yeah, that, you know, there is that. And there's also a pretense, like in, in the work that I do, there is a sense in which you're kind of want to be the last 
guru I talk about is that you're the one who exposes there is no guru but in order to do that the person projects onto you so maybe onto me is I have the answers and then gradually I disillusion them not only that I don't have the answers but that that there is a fundamental question at the heart of everything but to get to that point it almost feels like and I think this is what you would you would resist this but is that 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 fantasy that the analyst knows is the anchor that allows then ultimately the disillusionment to happen and I think you 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 know you almost have you're going too fast that's you know you said is that and that's you know that's like the, for example the psychotic subject who um or the perverse subject who already knows that like so the neurotic has to come to a disillusionment um but they have to go through the death of god if the death of god has already had like if they haven't gone through it that's not transformative but uh just in case yeah. <laughs> maybe uh there are those who um know it already yeah kind of uh, already there and uh but that's a non ship there like the psychotic already knows that a police officer is just a person like the neurotic thinks that they're a police officer the psychotic looks at a police officer and just sees a person they're not duped and that's why they err they because they they've already they've already had the insight too quickly no i don't know mm. so i think we're all turning into this kind of it's it's impossible so before a position of messiah was possible because um there was idea of salvation and one bringing or is a mediator of salvation now um there is at least what is left is the one who um, helps with the loss of salvation like the analyst uh, you have takes away what remains from the illusion of salvation at least you're doing this but it's still position of messiah like last messiah um, you take away uh, the very um, possibility of the position of bringing salvation and then after there's nothing to do really okay we all know there is no salvation there is no one who take this illusion away from and my question is what to do in not what to do but like that's the situation let's imagine and the position of an analyst even in this form is impossible um even being last messiah who takes away knowledge and uh, helps with helps through uh, brings a cure through not bringing salvation what if even this is doesn't make sense anymore but i don't uh, sorry to go back to that i don't understand where it's, it's to not have salvation is one thing, but that does not mean there's no improvement. The, the, the drug addict who can never not, can never overcome their original trauma, but they perhaps can stop using drugs and see their kids more. So, like, like the, the lady's question was, like, actually, she's not being bombarded with enjoy yourself. She's been, like, she would like to hear a few more messages saying, try a bit harder, life might get better. Like, why is that? I don't understand this idea that if there is no salvation, then, then there can be no improvement. Like, is there something, are you both saying that in the fundament, the fact that the universe is fundamentally contradictory and against itself means that the only truth is suffering? Because that fails to me to be elevate the, the position of the tragic. Like, that, like that, that the universe is self-contradictory could be seen as either, you know, God is dead and there's no meaning, isn't that terrible? Or God is dead and there's no meaning, isn't that hilarious? 
there's two positions you could take on that. One is tragic, one is comic. The tragic maybe forecloses everything else and means life is suffering, but the comic opens up all possibilities. Can I throw just one, one of the questions on the back of that? Yeah. Which yeah. sort of relates. If somebody's just said very simply, how does Julie understand reality such as awe and compassion? So kind of the, the more positive aspects that you experience of life kind of ties in with that. Why do you think that seeing your children is better than doing drugs? <laughs> how children are better than... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, but if you haven't got if you haven't got a difference between those, then I don't think you have a very much to say to most people. Like I don't think you help most. people. I don't think there's any project here that you have of value to people. If you do, if you can't see a difference between doing drugs and seeing your children, no, I see one, the other one is improvement. To be honest, but it's just to show how um, like it's relevant uh, position again in those in one of the dimensions uh, when we have common agreement that seeing your children is better than doing drugs. When you depress, it's like, uh, doesn't matter really. There is some dimension where it's, um, you can question it. It's not, you don't, there is nothing to, no knowledge, no objective improvement to hold on to, to where to progress. And um, well, life at the same time is approaching your death and at the same time being alive so actually no successful no improvement is possible uh, in some way because you still wherever you go either you see your kids more or uh, you do drugs it's just the same result the failure life is project that is uh, going to fail something like this so there is this dimension what 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 if the project is to stay alive forever yeah so why is that so bad no, it's not. It's good. <laughs> Interestingly, with the, within Lacani analysis, if I'm going like I, sh you know, I'm doing drugs and I should, you know, not seeing my kids enough, the analyst, a good analyst, actually re refuses to give the advice, even of like you know, see your kids more, or whatever. Like, and the partly the reason for that is that one is it's not prescriptive. You know, as it, as performatively not prescriptive. So of course it's better, or whatever. But performatively not descriptive which kind of helps because society does change in terms of its views on lots of things over time and and whenever you have a cultural view even if it's but any cultural view you have you can be become a foot soldier of the current ideology or whatever but what psychoanalysis does is it kind of gets you to see where your enjoyment of drugs is and it kind of helps you interrogates when I did analysis and I was looking for advice off the analyst and I was a couple of times going just come on just give me advice on this very practical thing I know you're not supposed to but just please and then they would go have you had any dreams recently <laughs> god for fuck's sake <laughs> you know um, but the example which I because I'm with you the example and I you might be critical of this but of, of how I think grace works in a productive way is that with with self-help you go right you want to go from a to b so the example of a writer you're a writer you've got writer's block but you want to write a book but you never can in analysis instead of giving you advice of how to write books you can get advice of write 500 words a day or it's super easy advice they don't give you advice because you're not taking it right but they go what are you enjoying about not writing what is what are you getting out of the writer's block is there something there so and you start to analyze your mood of whatever and in, in a nutshell, you could say that if, for example, you think writing is going to fix your life, 
then not getting that goal allows you to keep that fantasy alive. In my reading of what you're doing is the more you realize that writing the book is not going to really do anything cosmically amazing. And so you actually give up the the writing of the book and just kind of like work that through. I would say that actually makes you more likely to write the book, that 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 our failures to do something can often be caught up with. We're getting enjoyment from not doing something. So um, they live's a really good example of this, where the aliens are among us and all this ideology is in these posters. So we see the posters of you want to go to Jamaica, you want to go buy stuff, you want to have a great time. Behind the posters, it says consume, sleep more, obey authority. And, um, and so kind of this ideology is constantly uh, kind of keeping us asleep, keeping us going. And the idea is when you put the glasses on and you see the ideology, you see the enjoyment you're getting from not having it, you're getting something from consuming, from sleeping more, from questioning. You, you just see your enjoyment. That in and of itself, I think, can be productive. That's why I would kind of go with the answer. But, but you kind of want to say there's no production. Well, I would... Um yeah, it's problematic for me. I don't use yep. for it enjoyment, so it's yep. norm. It cannot offer anything what we have to do in relation to it, except for just maybe offering certain way of interpretation, where just avoiding not only enjoyment but also the idea of improvement. And I would see, for example, doing drugs and having kids as both just forms of uh, suicidal behavior. Uh, in different way and your choice is from what interests me and I'm not saying that it's the way it is it's the adequate perception but from my perspective that I'm representing with my existence for uh, I don't know why but I just would suggest um, uh, this as the choice between doing drugs and having kids is the choice of various forms of suicide and just question the idea of improvement here for no reason uh, even though it's conventionally accepted that one is the form of improvement but just seeing this dark side of the of both uh, and the choice between them is actually choice of uh, the end of choosing what way how suicidal you are not exposing that it's actually a way of suicide and so you can stop being suicidal, <laughs> just showing that there is no other uh, there is no other choice between choice how to be suicidal, uh, even if one uh, is perceived as improvement in relation to the other. So every way of killing yourself is just the same? Mm, ultimately, yeah, it leads to... <laughs> Okay. Can I have a one quick question? Uh, okay. Just so what Phil said, because you said to Julie, well, how does that help? Uh, and Julie, are you trying to help or are you not? No. No, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what and I And there's a, uh, is there one more at the back? We, I think we're at the limit of our, our timing. It just ties in with, with what Julie was just saying. It's just somebody has, has asked, is it accurate to say that negative practice is passive practice? So essentially you're just existing. Because I think what you're bringing is the morality of things, you know. Different. Oh, politics, I suppose. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's kind of like the where your moral compass, compass lies with these things. But but is then, yeah, negative psychoanalysis just a passive existence where you don't push against anything? The thing um, 
I would disagree with in my look like something passive because it has to do with giving up more than uh, doing something but passive the very word is too uh, active like it's how it's supposed to be like I know how it's supposed to be and I'm thinking that this is a better way it is passive and I want it to be that way unlike you know the active one which is people trying to do something it might appear it's just it's not about uh, I don't know <laughs> how it, what is it really and um, I wasn't insist on not knowing the way it's it is and maybe passive in relation to uh, in relation to world that tries to be active and aims at improving things it might seem passive and it might passive uh, in in uh, in a way of being quiet maybe uh, sh to shut up you know <laughs> and listen in this way uh, to not to try to improve prove anything or get anywhere just uh. so, so what do you do with positive things like awe and compassion and the, the more positive elements you of see? life your personal experience of, of just those love for example whatever the nice things so for me compassion is the most negative thing it, the suicidal you sacrifice yourself and you can way of committing suicidal like I mean, anything else including kids and drugs um, so I would see it as a negative thing and just masking yourself as positive but the true heart is we're not enjoying it it's just the secondary illusion enjoyment this is how we uh, justify doing this uh, because it's the core of it is embarrassing that is we're not enjoying it like we that's enjoyment is secondary for me the core of the em empathy and love is destructive suicidal which is where <laughs> which is where i think the enjoyment is I, like i go with this but i go like that's the enjoyment of love is it's is it suicidal dimension i love julie talks about the ch mother and child and how the child is that's a, a fundamentally abusive type of relationship in the sense of your kids take 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 and often when they're teenagers think that even the way you breathe is annoying and uh, the way you take space is horrific and there's something but I just want to keep going, like, and that's what's enjoyable about it. 